it's very hard to practice the Eightfold Noble Path even in a, a meditation session let alone in your life if we don't know that we're deluded someone asked how do we know if we're suffering from delusion this is a very difficult question because the deluded mind is not aware that it's deluded so how do we know well when you're asleep you don't know you're asleep but when you wake up you know that you're awake and similarly but it's easier to figure it out when we're addicted to something and we're busy running after it whether here or outside we don't know we're addicted because we just want to get it we might know on the edges we don't want to know we just want to get the object and we use all our energy for getting getting the object and when we're averse repelled when something is repulsive and we don't want it then we use all our energy to push it away this is the opposite of greed those two are easier to know but the person who's in doubt or who's confused is just kind of moving from one thing to another not knowing what they want and what they don't want just doesn't know what it's all about all of us whether we're greed, full of greed or full of aversion or confused it's all ignorance so maybe it doesn't matter if you name it as greed, hatred and delusion to begin with what matters is when we wake up I'm awake and this is a wonderful thing when we wake up in the morning we have all kinds of choices our eyes are open we begin to move and act to see, to feel to taste, to touch to live consciously we have that choice and then we can notice our reactions or our responses to our choices in life but the thing is that um, much of the time we're walking around as if we were embalmed we're wrapped up covered with band-aids the wound of ignorance is festering but we've got it nicely stitches too if you want throw stitches in there it's bandaged up because it is very painful to look and delusion the doubting mind 
the confused mind, not knowing, not wanting to know again, but neither pushing away or grabbing, or maybe doing all of it, both, and being unable to decide. So expending its energy, complaining and criticizing and justifying, and consoling itself, consoling ourselves. When I was practicing in Burma and I went to my teacher to report, there, there's no option. You want to practice in the monastery, you have to come for an interview. Every day. <laughs> and it could be nothing. So you come with all this expectation, because now that you've got the interview, you want, you want him to say something. And then you get there and, and you blurt out some, I don't know what, about your sitting. And he just looks at you and says, continue. And so you go back and then you start feeling regret about the whole thing. That oh, you wish he had said more. You went all the trouble of going to the end, etc., etc. And then the mind is lost in that. So that's a moment of, that's lost in memory. And we're deluded because we're not in the present moment. We're, or we're lost in aversion to the experience and to the feeling in the body or in the heart about the memory. He didn't tell me what a good meditator I am. <laughs> he didn't tell me how much progress I was making. And so you, you embalm yourself, we embalm ourselves with our, our memories and our judgments about our experience. Like, I don't like this monastery anyway, I'm going to go somewhere else. Or I don't like Theravadan Buddhism. I think Tibetan Buddhism is more exciting. So I'm going to go do that for a while. Because it, it didn't prop up the ego. It didn't feel comfortable. We want to crawl back into the state of embalmment. Is that, I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> I was talking to one of the people here who does this for a living. And it reminded me of when I was at the monastery, we learned all kinds of things in the monastery. I had to act as an undertaker at one time when one of my dear friends and one of our big supporters died suddenly in hospital of leukemia and she had no relatives. So I was named as her nearest. It just had to be one of the nuns and it fell on me because we had a good rapport. So. I was put down as the person to come and collect the body. So we got one of the laymen in the monastery to drive the van, and we went down to the hospital. And we wrapped her body up in a sheet and put it in the back of the van, not to be. I mean, we didn't have the equipment for this. And then we're driving through the streets of London. <laughs> this friend of ours wrapped up in a sheet in the back hoping <laughs> we wouldn't get stopped in traffic <laughs> or by policemen. We didn't have any papers or anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> and this was in midsummer, and then we had we had we laid her out in the chapel of rest in the back of the sala. She was the very first person to have this honor to be laid out. As monastics, really we do take up the Buddha's advice to contemplate death all the time. So there it is, 
And this lady used to be very talkative. Even when she was lying there in the chapel of rest, Ajahn Sumedho came in and he said some very outrageous things. And she didn't say a word. (laughs) And so so he said, yep, she's dead. (laughs) Now, what I remember, what I remember about Alina so well is that she used to make jokes like this. She used to say, when I die, you can do anything you want with my body. And so here we were, we were doing just that. We were contemplating death. And that's a real way to penetrate through delusion. You want to penetrate through delusion? Just watch a dead body to decompose. And that will pull away all the ways that we contrive to make ourselves look the way we, we think we want to look and rosy up the body and you know then we attach to the beauty of it and that's a big delusion because we think that we are that and actually it's just a bag of bones and all the rest we've talked about this then very interesting even more than that is try embalming a body it was midsummer and we wanted to keep Alina's body up until the puja right before the vasa then all the sangha would gather together and wonderful funeral. But we had to embalm the body and the embalmer came and I said to myself, I've never observed this. And she said, do anything you want to my body. So I said, could I assist? And he said, sure. So I participated in twice in embalming. And at first, I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I thought I might faint. Have all these ideas, and it was very, it was really quite repulsive work at one level. But done with a certain kind of care, you know, the way you would care for a feeling that is arising inside you that is so awful you don't want to feel it. So just noticing, you know, as one is um, trying to remove the rotted or the decomposed fluids inside the body with these different equipment that they have and working on it. And then you see, well, there's not much you can do with a dead body, really. One tries to keep it looking like the person, I think, is what it's all about. So that at the time of the funeral, there's some kind of perception or sanya that this person is the person we thought it was. It's very strange. (laughs) But as a way of honoring our spiritual friend. But the real friendship that she gave, even in death, was for me to be able to face my own um, feelings around the repulsiveness of decay and decomposition of that which we held dear. I thought that was an amazing offering, really and help me to confront some frightening areas in, in, in the mind and left absolutely not a, a, a centimeter of delusion about the fact that this is just earth, air, fire, water and the mind element is gone. It's a mystery. We don't know where it is. 
So she was very much with me throughout this. And I could even feel her joking, making jokes as we prodded and pulled, you know, and dressed her up and all that kind of stuff. I could hear her just... You know I never wore lipstick. These kind of of comments coming. It was just delightful. So maybe what it doesn't matter how long we're asleep, as I've said before. It, it matters when we wake up. It matters that we wake up and that we try to wake up. But if we can't know we're asleep when we're asleep, at least we can know we're awake when we wake up. And then we can reflect on what kind of sleep it was. You know, were we in denial? when I I had to report in one of those interviews and and I was explaining my practice to the Sayadaw and he said, oh, you're the angry type. And I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) There's a little denial going on there. So then I was deluded about my anger. So there's always, you know, as long as we're asleep, we're basically deluded. And delusion is a very, if all of these things, you know, none of this is black and white. There are many shades of gray. So you might be an angry type plus a greedy type plus a faith type, you know, or you might be more of one. It doesn't matter. It's a a bit like, you know, the astrology fix. You know, oh, you're a Scorpio, wow. Watch out, or you're a dragon, or you're a dog my best friend, or things like this. You know, these are um, ways of playing with our delusions, if you will, or our characteristics, which are they're not ultimate things that we can take refuge in. What we can take refuge in is that there is no self. What we believe is a me is just earth, air, fire, water, and the mind element. And if we can know ourselves on the elemental level, that's a huge waking up. If we can know consciousness as consciousness and not mistake it for uh, form, for the body, that's terrific. If we can know uh, a thought for a thought and not mistake it for a material element, that's terrific. You know, we're beginning to understand how we're put together. If we can know the impermanence of the contents of the mind, the rise and cease, the rise and cease. So anger is there, it arises, it, it endures, it runs us ragged for a few days, a few months, a few years. And then it ends. As soon as the body dies, it does end for sure, if not before, hopefully. So that we empty ourselves of all this morbid energy, stagnant energy, 
fixated energy. Fixated energy needs to be freed. It begs to be freed. That's what's called freeing the heart. All of this energy is is good, good stuff. And all of it can can get stuck and can cause us pain and suffering. Pain by itself we're gonna get anyway. Welcome to the human realm. But the blessing is, as the Buddha always said, that there's a mixture of pain and pleasure, and from this we can learn so much. So that we need to celebrate the painful bits. Because when we wait, see, when we're asleep, it feels terrific. But it's impermanent, so we can't take refuge in it. When we're deluded, that's why addicts are so addicted. And we're all addicts in one way or another. We all have our little pet addiction. We can contemplate what, what it is. What is my pet addiction? What's my feature? What's my strategy for coping with the parts of my life that I don't like? So we just have to wake up and know. The minute we know what we're addicted to, we've already begun to loosen the addiction. We've already entered the detox clinic. It's here in the moment. The waking up is the the purification, is the detoxification. And it hurts. Because when you're asleep, it feels so good. Oh, give me another pillow. (laughs) I just want to... heard this is a common expression I just want to crawl under the duvet you know this feeling when life it's just too much it's too overwhelming so this phenomena of covering over even I think in the great Chinese wisdom when a situation is too complex and too fraught to deal with we cover it with grass so it looks good but we haven't really dealt with it but we have to deal with it we can't leave it covered over with grass we have to um, detoxify and free ourselves from these obsessions and addictions just by admitting honestly and by saying yeah okay you know I had I was sheepishly Walking out that day, I remember when he said, "Oh, you're the angry type," and I felt a real fool. To, you know, and then I saw it plain as day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course I am, and it's okay. It's okay because the minute that the mind that knows anger is not angry, and the mind that knows desire is not in a slave to that desire anymore. So that's why the power of mindfulness is so huge. Mindfulness and clear comprehension, discernment. In a moment of mindfulness, we have wisdom. Why? Because we have right view. The right, right there, we're aware of the truth in the moment. We see where our suffering is, we understand the origin of it, and we were able to let it go. And the path is is coming to life. 
and it's also right effort because we have tried to look we've tried to wake up the intention to wake up is an awakening it's the beginning it's like the the intention to observe the breath you already begin to see the beginning of the breath the beginning knowing the beginning of the breath arising in your mind is a moment of right view knowing the middle of the breath is a moment of right view knowing the ending of the breath is a moment of right view if you can know the beginning the middle and the end then you have realized impermanence suffering and not self and then you are a spiritual friend to yourself because you have woken up and you have made the intention to do so and it's happening right there and then and it's beautiful in the beginning and it's beautiful in the middle and beautiful in the end and so the ending of anger the death of anger is not a bad thing it's liberating that that acknowledging that confessing remember <clears throat> the beginning of the retreat we talked about revealing our hidden faults well you know you have all these seismologists descending on certain areas of the world to observe carefully when the next tremor is measuring it and all the rest and yesterday we had one on Natanchal's death anniversary we had an earthquake so it's because there's a fault line in there in the earth there's a, this crevasse or is it a crevasse I always get this too many stockings my brain gets, seems to get more foggy as I get older it doesn't matter the intention is to be awake <laughs> so by revealing our hidden faults we're you see I often look at these houses perched on cliffs in Wellington and think this is an earthquake zone look at those houses they could just crumple up like a pack of cards it's pretty risky business but people go right ahead and yeah I guess you just have to live on the edge <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are when we reveal our hidden faults this kind of a fault line we're full of faults it doesn't matter just see know that they're there and so when we suffer we can realize why well I've got this this fault and I have been denying it for years and years and years so we finally wake up and see why we're you know for an addict it might be why they're um, sit, you know they've had to come to an emergency clinic to get treatment and for us normal addicts <laughs> people that think we're not addicted and just can have these su- superior skills for coping with this world or whatever you want to call it <laughs> maybe they're inferior skills for coping I've often thought that 
people that go to the extremes and live on the very fringes of society are the real spiritual warriors because they've just given up on the world because they see the hopelessness. But see, the Buddha didn't give up on the world. Even he, th- he saw how much dust there was in people's eyes. He went out and he tried to help them wake up. So to, to have the Buddha as, as our best friend, we have to do that to ourselves. We have to reveal those hidden faults and do something. Work towards waking up and strengthening ourselves in wholesome ways and be the spiritual friend to ourselves by practicing this, bringing this path to life. Not just, we learn how to do it through mindfulness, concentration, right view in the moment, right effort, faith, trusting this process so that we can live happily, freely, not slavishly to those deceits, delusions in which we're caught so that we can live consciously, so that we can be awake. Otherwise, we are as if already dead. We're embalmed. This is such a powerful image. So we have to just check in and see. See this this torch of Dhamma that we're shining in the mind helps us to see not only that we are deluded or greedy, angry, and all the different mixtures and recipes you want to concoct around it, it doesn't matter, but to see what's going on in there and start to do the work step by step. So at the next earthquake, we know how to escape because we are in danger. And this is the way how to get out of danger. People say, oh, you're just running away from reality. But little do they know that we're really trying to face reality. We are, and it's a cause of joy. This is the real cause of joy in the heart. And we're doing it because we're, we've understood the origin, the gratification, the danger, and the escape from the things that keep us embalmed. In, in the Dhammapada, there's a line that says, health is the greatest contentment. And I used to think, oh, good health, important. Not just Nibbana is the, the greatest gain, the greatest happiness. Well, we know that. Health is the greatest contentment. And I was quite deluded, and I thought that that meant you should eat right. And so I had all kinds of ways of justifying why I should get extra fruit in the morning, in the monastery, in the early days, you know, so that I could be healthy. And then... I had it pointed out to me by a very wise being that the true meaning of that is the health of the mind. It doesn't mean that the health of the body isn't important, but it doesn't lead to liberation. 
it doesn't lead to that ultimate, it's not an ultimate refuge. Healthy mind is the greatest contentment. Because even if you have the best body in the whole world, <laughs> think of it. Would you like to have the best body in the whole world? The right shape and the right weight and the right height and the right complexion, no wrinkles and all the rest of it. If you had the best, then and all your organs were in perfect shape. <laughs> that is not the real source of contentment. The good news is that we don't have to do that because it's not real. We can never hold that for very long. Eventually, your lungs are going to go, or your liver, or the kidneys, or... Eventually, yeah, you can hold that for a while, but just like a good samadhi, eventually it's impermanent and it will dissolve and your hindrances, the anxieties and the fears and the, the restlessness and the, the delusion will all come rushing up again. The earthquake will throw everything off and we'll be in crisis or something will go wrong. But we can develop real contentment, real peace by cultivating a healthy mind. I don't mean a happy mind. I don't mean psychological health, which is deluded happiness. But even though you might function very well in the world, I mean a transcendent joy, which comes from complete freedom from attachment to any conditioned thing. I would just like to read something to you which is from Tibetan Buddhist teaching Kadampa Gete Lambertam Pa that His Holiness presented when he was here. It's just glorious. And I thought this is very apropos on the heels of what we were contemplating together about spiritual friendship. And just contemplate how we do or do not do this in our own lives. Because we're investigating the real origin of our unhappiness. It's here. These are called eight verses for training the mind. May I always cherish all beings with the resolve to accomplish for them the highest good that is more precious than any wish-fulfilling jewel. Whenever I am in the company of others, may I regard myself as inferior to all and from the depths of my heart cherish others as supreme. In all my actions may I watch my mind, and as soon as disturbing emotions arise, may I forcefully stop them at once, since they will hurt both me and others. When I see ill-natured people overwhelmed by wrong deeds and pain, may I cherish them 
as something rare, as though I had found a treasure trove. When someone out of envy does me wrong by insulting me and the like, may I accept defeat and offer the victory to them. Even if someone whom I have helped and whom I have placed my hopes does great wrong by harming me, may I see them as an excellent spiritual friend. In brief, directly or indirectly, may I give all help and joy to my mothers and may I take all their harm and pain secretly upon myself. May none of this ever be sullied by thoughts of the eight worldly concerns, such as praise and blame, happiness and unhappiness, success and failure, pain and pleasure. May none of this ever be sullied by those thoughts. May I see all things as illusions and without attachment gain freedom from bondage. Freedom is about no consolation. Akusala is a very important word. Akusala means unwholesomeness in the mind. We want, in a non-violent way, to kill the akusala, to abandon akusala, and to go towards the kusala, the wholesomeness in the mind, that which is lovely, the noble quality of the mind. So, a good mantra, especially when you're doing your walking meditation, is what am I thinking? Is it kusala or akusala? Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Realizing the origin, the gratification or the attempt to gratify, or to console, to find some nice consolation, and then the danger and the escape. So even if a kusala is arising in the mind, we turn it to kusala. We abandon it. We know it for what it is. We call it by its true name we realize the danger of hanging on to it, the delusion that that creates. We don't want to be asleep. We want to wake up. So we disarm the enemy. The enemy is only an idea. We disarm it. So if you're thinking about somebody in the past or the future also, trying to, by practicing this metta bhavana, cultivating metta towards that person, is sending loving-kindness towards them. May you be well. Having tried that to ourselves, hopefully. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be free. And realizing all of us have a right to be happy. That is our birthright. We all have a right to be free. We all have a right to be well. And all of us are, are the heirs of our karma. So you raise up compassion for that thought, that hostile or negative thought that you so 
want to escape from. The true escape from it is to recognize it for what it is, to see the danger of it, to let it go, and to realize that it's coming. In the same way with a hostile person, such as ourselves, transforming the enemy within into the Buddha within. And the quote-unquote enemy without, who is really a teacher, as the Dalai Lama pointed out, he's our teacher, to bring up a sense of gratitude for what that person is unknowingly showing us about ourselves. And then trying to remember they too will suffer. They are born so they will get old and get sick and die. Using these and just keep applying this training moment by moment by moment and see the result for yourselves.